This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. The first thing really I want to say, to say is just how glad I am to be here. Not just glad, but actually honored and in some ways humbled uh, to be here to play my little part in uh, celebrating the 25th anniversary of this extraordinary facility, this project, Ariloka Buddhist Retreat Centre and uh, Meditation Centre. I've been coming for a long time, as, as Dai Lochana just said. I've, I first came in 1987, and I think I've come every year since, and sometimes just a couple of times, I think I've come twice in a year. So I've really seen the ups, downs, triumphs and near disasters. Um, I've seen extraordinary heroism, persistence, sacrifice and joy and uh, miracles. Um, so I know perhaps uh, you know, more than many just how much you have to celebrate, how much we have to celebrate in the fact that Ariloka is here and going so well and that it has celebrated, is, is celebrating 25 years of, of increasing substance, solidity, viability and the teaching and spreading and sharing of the Buddha Dharma. Now 25 years can seem like a long time. You know, I guess to some of you who've been here for most of those 25 years working on it, it could seem like a very long time, a, a, a big part of your life and, and a big and uh, sometimes arduous project. But it's worth remembering that 25 years is just 1% of Buddhist history. Um, the Buddha lived 2,500 years ago. So I think that to appreciate the achievement of, of Ariyaloka, to appreciate the significance of this moment in the history of Ariyaloka, we have to kind of go back a bit. In fact, we have to go back a long way. We have to go back not just 25 years, but two and a half thousand years. And go back to the young man who started it all. I think it's important you know, to try and enter in our imagination into the mind of this extraordinary young man. We know so little about him. A lot of what we do know is legend. But, you know, whether it's legend, fact, history, who knows. But somewhere at the beginning of all this, two and a half thousand years, a young man was tortured um, by questions, tortured by problems. It had sort of hit him, and I won't go into all the traditional stories as to how and why and when, but it had hit him that we have to grow old. It had hit him that we get sick. It had hit him that we have to die. And in the state he was in, of seeing that, of feeling it, of experiencing it, for as if for the first time, it sort of seemed that life was a bit pointless. You know, we might have all had those moments when you just have a glimpse of your mortality or the mortality of your loved ones or whatever, and you kind of sometimes wonder... What's the point? Why go on? Why achieve anything? What, what's it for? I remember my father, when he was just a few weeks away from, from death, talking with me about his, his life. At one point, he kind of threw his arms out and shrugged, and he said, for what? You know, we, we can have those moments when we wonder, why? 
Well, these moments kind of hit, impacted on this young man, Siddhartha, with tremendous force, you know, so much so that after wrestling with the problem for a while, he realized that he couldn't put himself into life, he couldn't engage with life unless he could sort out that problem, unless he could answer that question. And he was willing to give up absolutely everything, his, his family, his wealth, his prospects, in order to try and find out whether there was any kind of answer, any place in life, any place in reality, where there was a safe haven, a refuge, a meaning, a purpose, a point to this otherwise rather ridiculous phenomenon called life. So when we celebrate Hariyaloka's history, it's kind of good to have that in mind. You know, that kind of passion, that kind of earnestness, that kind of burning desire for truth. Because that's where Aryaloka's history began. This young man went on to find teachers. And all the teachers around, you know, who were very, very experienced meditators and who could teach him all kinds of stuff, took him to some extraordinarily powerful states of mind, mystical states of, of merging into the totality of reality and all the rest of it, these very high, highly refined subjective psychological states. But again and again, he realized... You have to come down from those states. It wasn't an answer. It wasn't safe. It wasn't substantial. In the end, purely from his own exploration, his own experimentation, his own persistence, he hit it. He hit on the answer. It wasn't particularly in the development of higher and higher magical meditative states. It was in a kind of direct penetration through insight an insight that was, was, was strongly rooted in and founded on meditation practice, but it, was, it wasn't just another high. It was seeing things as they actually are. It was, and, and, and the tradition sort of often uses this analogy, it was like waking up. It wasn't just having a better dream or a clearer dream or a nicer dream. It was actually waking up out of the dream of the particular relationship that he was in with reality. He saw things in a completely new way. He kind of found a foothold in this new level of, uh, of experience, this new awakening. And in that, he found the absolute liberation that he'd been looking for, an absolute liberation maybe from the sort of narrow, self-centered, delusory dream in which he, like all of us, had been trapped. Whatever it was that happened to him, and, we, and, and Buddhist texts don't even know how to talk about what it was that happened to him, we do know it was absolutely radical. It was something completely new and unprecedented. It was, it was something that no one within recorded history had ever experienced before. There's a lovely story of uh, him meeting somebody a few weeks afterwards. It was one of the first people he'd met as he went about his travels. Um, and the person sort of seeing him realised there was something quite strange, new, unprecedented about him. And he said, what are you? He didn't say, who are you? He said, what are you? you know, are, you a, are you a god? Are you a goblin? Are you a, you know, there are Indian words like Gandharva and Deva. You know, we sort of maybe have equivalents like a sprite or a ghost or a, you know, he asked these questions. Are you this? Are you that? Are the other? And the Buddha kept saying no. And he said, well, 
any of those kind of psychological conditionings according to which you could call me a god or a human being or a goblin or, or whatever, they're, they're gone. They just don't exist any, anymore in me. I'm a fully awakened being. You have to call me a Buddha. So again, that's what, that's where the origin of Aryaloka lies. It's, it's in something quite radical, something quite new, something quite other. It was so other, so new, so radical that this man didn't really know whether it could be communicated. He wanted to communicate it because having woken out of this bad dream, he felt free and looking around himself, he saw everywhere people suffering. As he put it, the world was on fire, on fire with people's greed, on fire with people's hatred, on fire with the sort of mad delusions in which people frittered away their lives and worse. But he honestly didn't know whether it was possible. How do you go into someone's dream? You know, they'll see you as part of their dreams. So how do you wake them up? Maybe Leonardo DiCaprio has an answer, but um, <laughs> most of us don't. And you know, it, it really was a puzzle. What do you? What do we do? And how do we wake another person up if we are just, to them at least, just another figure in their dream? It was a real puzzle, a real poser. But he decided to have a go at it. You know, he, he, he met with people, he talked to them in various ways, he, he just tried to steer them in the direction of an awakening similar to his, and did it. Um, eventually he managed to find ways of communicating it. And what's interesting is that once he had, as it were, helped a few other people to, to recapitulate his experience, to, to share and, 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 uh, and, and meet where he was, he asked them to go off, rather than staying with him, rather than forming a kind of cosy family of enlightened, awakened beings, but to go off, as he put it, no two people in the same direction and spread this teaching for the happiness and the welfare of all, all beings. He felt this extraordinary sense of urgency, even though he knew it was an almost impossible challenge to go out and spread what he was calling the Dharma, the truth, the way to come out of the, the, the nightmare of limited human consciousness, a limited human grasp on, on how reality actually works into something freer, happier, more creative and meaningful. So that's how Buddhism was born. And again, that's how the history of Hariloka began. It was an awesome project, uh, an impossible and almost impossible to challenge. But these people travelled, they met people, they communicated. And as the years went by, they went to other countries. They found new ways of talking, new ways of meeting with people, new ways of expressing these truths. You know, in Japan, they used koans or asked people to look at white walls. In Tibet, demons and all kinds of magical symbols appeared and so on and so on all over the East, as, as, as this teaching, as this attempt to wake people up, travelled. Um, new forms, even new faces were devised. If you look at a Tibetan Buddha image, it'll look very different to a Thai Buddha image, which will look very different to a Japanese Buddha image. It's like, in, in so many ways, this attempt to communicate, this attempt to wake people up, found an expression, or tried to find an expression in a way that really suited the temperament and conditioning and personalities of the people that it was addressing.
Of course, it wasn't called Buddhism, and what people encountered when they encountered one of these teachers, one of these long-distant disciples of the Buddha, was just maybe the local person in their area. They didn't, you know, if you lived in Thailand, you didn't meet a Tibetan Buddhist. If you lived in Burma, you didn't meet a Japanese Zen Buddhist. You, you possibly just met somebody who wandered through your village. You know, so it was a very atomized, um, compartmentalized world. But somehow or other, it lasted, it persisted, it developed. And over the centuries, you know, threw up great enlightened teachers, great enlightened masters, something worked, you know, again and again. There were probably bad experiments, false leads, but something worked, something survived. A tradition developed, grew, spread, which produced awakened people right through the hundreds, even thousands of years, right up to the present. And here in the present, you know, what's been interesting about the last hundred years or so, since all this suddenly found an audience in the West, is that the walls were removed. You know, suddenly, instead of there just being a little man coming to your village and, or your town or your whatever and telling you something about Buddhism, instead, suddenly, whether it was through books or the Internet or whatever, it was possible for us Westerners, us modern Westerners, to see the whole thing to know that there was Tibetan Buddhism and Japanese Buddhism and Thai Buddhism and Burmese Buddhism and all these different Buddhisms, it was suddenly, we were suddenly confronted with this incredible, uh, complex, contradictory world, an entire universe of Buddhist practices, Buddhist images, Buddhist symbols. In fact, it was so complex, so rich, so diverse and so contradictory that I think there was a real danger that it couldn't be used, that it, it, it was just too much, too soon, too quickly, and we simply wouldn't know how to make any use of it. So in a way, there were various options. I mean, the, the, the kind of option that probably a lot of us have begun our involvement with Buddhism is through just encountering lots of it and taking a little bit here, a little bit there from this book, that book, you know, maybe a book of Zen koans, maybe a book of Theravada stories from the Pali Canon and, and so on, maybe a, a, the, the life of Milarepa. Maybe we've been to different teachers who, who've taught us different meditations. Now, that is one way of getting involved in this extraordinary tradition. I mean, it can be very interesting, very titillating. I think in my sort of very first sort of years of involvement with the Dharma, it's what I did. And I would just sort of seek out titillating um, metaphysical moments and experiences and it was kind of fun and it was good but it wasn't a way of going very deep, it wasn't a way of staying very focused another way of, of going about things is to just decide to choose one teacher who, is, who represents one of the established eastern traditions it's something that quite a few people do still. They, they will choose somebody who represents and teaches totally within the Burmese tradition or the Gelugpa Tibetan tradition or, or the Rinzai Zen tradition and so on. And you can kind of put yourself into that and, and go maybe quite a lot further because you're then working with a discipline and within a, a clear tradition. But there can be a problem with that. A few years ago, or quite a few years ago, I met a, a Tibetan Lama, 
who I'm going to be giving a talk about in about three weeks' time. Dada Rinpoche, one of uh, our founders, one of Sangharakshita's teachers. And he was you know, a really interesting man, an incredibly deep and sincere and, and lovely man. Uh, we spent about 12 hours locked in conversation over the course of two days in Kalimpong, in the sort of northeast of India. And as we spoke, it became more and more and more obvious that he was completely immersed in his Tibetan world. You know, all, all his imagery, all his examples were drawn you know, from, from a very pure Tibetan standpoint. You know, one thing that I found a bit unnerving was just how much he talked about hell, uh, which is a very Tibetan preoccupation, which I'll tell you about in three weeks' time. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, as, as, as we spoke, you know, it, it was obvious that... Uh, you know, he, he was very excited to you know, be meeting not just me, but to meet, be meeting other Western Buddhists. He was excited by this development and, and confessed to me that he would love to come to the West to help you know, spread the Dharma, spread the Buddhist teaching in the West. And I said, well, do you think you know, that your form of Buddhism you know, is going to work in the West because there are lots of Tibetan teachers? And he laughed and said, well, no, of course not. Um, <laughs> he said, well... The great thing about Tibet, this is all through a translator, so you know, I don't know how he actually spoke, but uh, he said the great thing about Tibet and Tibetan Buddhism is that it is so completely integrated into Tibetan culture that it's actually impossible to tell where culture ends and Buddhism begins, whether it's music, dance, the way we speak, our alphabet. You know, it, it's all totally rooted and bound up and folded into Buddhism, into the Buddha Dharma. He said, for Tibetans, that's wonderful. But for you guys, you know, it's not going to work because you're not born in this world. You're not Tibetan. You are going to have to do it all yourself. You're going to have to you know, get involved in the process of practicing the Dharma and trying to develop, you know, bit by bit over hundreds of years as we have, you know, a Buddhist culture so that in your country... You know, to read a newspaper in some way puts you in touch with, with a Buddhist teaching or a Buddhist truth or the, the symbols that you bump into all the time in some way remind you of the deeper truths of the Dharma. He, and so that's when he said, well, if I was younger, I would love to come and play a part in that. But um, you know, instead, you know, one of his disciples, one of his students, Sangharachita, you know, took up that challenge and decided to come to the West to play his part in waking up Westerners, play his part in what, you know, arguably, you know, has to be one of the most exciting cultural adventures that anyone could be involved with at, at, at this moment in time, the, 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 the birth of a Buddhist culture in the West. I mean, here's a, you know, a religion that is a world religion that's been going for two and a half thousand years that has had millions, if not billions, of adherents over, over time. And you know, here we are at the absolute beginning of this adventure of seeing how to make it work in the West. You know, this is the challenge accepted by Sangharakshita, again. This is the challenge implicit in the history of Aryaloka. Sangharakshita was, was, is, an extraordinary man. At the age of whatever it was, about 38, 40, when he came back from India, he's English, by the way, for those who've, who've not heard of him before. He's an Englishman who spent 
about 20 years practicing, studying, um, living in India. He came back to England. Um, in India, he had had quite a different background to most Buddhists. He had become ordained, because I think you say in this country, he ordained as uh, a Buddhist monk into the Theravada tradition. But when he lived in Kalimpong at the urging of his Theravada teacher, he got to know a lot of Tibetans and took initiations and uh, another ordination from, from them. And while in Kalimpong, he also got to know very well a, a Chinese Chan Buddhist. And generally through his meetings and through his, his study and his reflection and his writings, he developed an overview of the Buddhist tradition, which probably in his time was completely unique. Um, he was unique in establishing a, a, a vihara, a kind of training, a Buddhist training uh, situation that was open to all the major traditions of Buddhism. You know, he, even in India, he sort of refused to be put in a, in a box. Even in India, he, he decided that the future of Buddhism lay in our recognition that we modern people are heirs to the entire tradition. We can't pretend that we are just one thing or the other. We might choose to focus in, but you know, we, are, we, we, we are inevitably going to be influenced by the entire tradition. So he set about the business for himself, for his own benefit, and subsequently for others, of, of looking at that tradition and trying to make some kind of sense of it, trying to find a synthesis that, that would bring it to life, that would make it accessible to people who otherwise would just be faced with a bewildering mass of contradictory elements. Notably, he did it in a book, which we still publish and reprint every few years, called The Survey of Buddhism, which uh, I imagine you'll find out there in, in the bookstore. But it, it was more than that. It was in the way he taught, and the way, once he moved to England initially, that he chose to teach Buddhism by introducing us to, to practices drawn from, from, some, from varying traditions, introducing people to texts from both the Mahayana, the Hinayana, Theravada world and so on. He, I suppose, you know, you could say initiated a, a, a creative period in his life where he, he, he devised systems of meditation, systems of ethical um, practice, where he, he selected texts, even rituals, um, that he thought you know, would be most effective in the West, drawing from the wider tradition, in order to see if it was possible to communicate to people in the West something that was coherent and that worked and that was viable within a Western context. Right from the outset, he wanted to create a community, and at the heart of the community, he, envis he envisaged an order which would be neither monastic nor lay. In other words, you know, as he saw it and as he wanted to present it from the very outset, Buddhism is something that has to be practiced. You, know, you can maybe be you know, a follower of various religions, go to church once a week or go to church once a year at Christmas or go to the synagogue on a Friday or, or whatever and otherwise live a fairly ordinary life. You know, in his view, you couldn't do that as a Buddhist. As a Buddhist, you were either following in the footsteps of that earnest young man, burning with an almost painful desire to get out of um, a limited, ignorant, deluded human state, or, or you weren't. 
So whether you were a monk or a layman, in a sense, made no difference. It was up to everyone, if they wanted to follow the Buddha's example and teaching, to really get on with it, whatever their context, and to turn any context they found themselves into a spiritual practice. It all began in a room that I think had room for about eight or nine people. I missed that phase, unfortunately. I'm really sad. I got asked to go along. I'd met another Buddhist at work who wanted me to come and meet his teacher, Sangharachitra. In those days, I didn't believe in teachers or groups. (laughs) I should have stayed clear. Uh, And he kept saying, you must come to a beginner's class. You must meet this, this man. And even the, you know, the very word beginner's class offended me. And, uh, so I didn't go, and I'm really sad because I never went to that first centre. I never, I never sat in that room with him with just a few other people. I got involved just a tiny bit later, after that place had had a fire. And the FWBO, as it was called, the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order, didn't have a centre at all. In those days, the FWBO was about 30 of us who met in a hired room once a week and uh, meditated and listened to Sangharachita give a talk. But we were young, we were idealistic, and we were naive, um, and we just went for it hook, line and sinker, those of us who did. And, you know, we, we thought Sangharachita was the answer, that we'd found the answer, that we were the answer. After a few years... You know, we were doing some teaching ourselves. We were opening centres ourselves. Some of us were forming into uh, residential communities and living together. Some of us were starting businesses. And you know, in a very short time, we were creating a kind of world within a world in which we saw ourselves living a complete Buddhist life you know, within the Western context, so under the, the inspired guidance of this, this man who was able to... Uh, offer us a kind of coherent path of practice drawn on the whole tradition. It was a fantastic feeling. And, you know, it was not unmixed with a certain arrogance and cocksureness, uh, but there it was. You know, we, we were really doing it. And that, you know, to bring things right here, was the kind of mindset of the first pilgrims who came to America. <laughs> Manjuvadra, Punya, Vajradaka, you know, the, the three guys who came over here, first of all to Boston and, uh, and then to, to establish Ariloka, came out of that really new, really young, maybe really naive, really arrogant little world you know, of a bunch of people who believe we were the answer, not just to Buddhism in the West, but to the whole of Buddhism, by the way. <laughs> and, and actually to the whole problem of what was wrong with the world, nuclear war, you know, the, the environment, whatever. We were the answer. And if only we could get enough people to listen to us and do what we were doing, the world would be sorted out. Um, I think we honestly believe that. <laughs> I don't think, if we hadn't believed that, we wouldn't have done the things we, we did. I wouldn't have been setting up publishing houses and doing, and, and public centres, Manjivadra and Vajradaka Punya, wouldn't have had the nerve to come to the United States of America to start a Buddhist movement. No robes, you know, just three rather strange assorted Englishmen. Um, <laughs> what were they thinking? <laughs> but there they were, and here you are. You know, Manjuvadra will be here in a couple of days and, you know, come to his talk. 
and I'm not going to steal his thunder. You know, I, hope, I imagine he'll have a lot of stories and anecdotes from those days. I'm just going to mention a couple. Now, these young men, um, you know, with their naivety and their arrogance and their readiness for an adventure, had to hit a few reality checks. And, and the one I remember Manjivadra telling me about was how they decided that probably Boston was the best place to start because it was maybe a little bit more English. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they might not stick out so much. <laughs> That's what they said anyway. <laughs> and so, you know, they choose Boston and they, they manage to find a place to rent. And I think Manjavadra was cycling to... He, you know, they, they obviously had, they had to get work and, you know, to just pay the rent. I think Manjivandra was cycling to work after being there a day, maybe two days, and someone stopped him on the street and said, what are you doing? (laughs) This is a dangerous area, don't you know? (laughs) And it just hadn't occurred to them that there were places where you don't buy a you know, rent a place to, to start a Buddhist centre because no one's going to go there <laughs> So, yeah, this was a kind of one of the first reality checks that they, that they hit, that they were in a different world, you know, a different country, a different land, and, and the rules were different and the norms were different and they, they were going to uh, have to work with that. And, you know, I, again, Manjiv- I'll leave it to Manjivadra to tell you the story, but... You know, the outcome was, after a while they decided it, they weren't ready or they weren't able to deal with the city. And you know, this idea emerged, this, this possibility emerged, of buying this extraordinary place you know, in the middle of nowhere, forgive me. Uh, <laughs> a kind of old hippie's dream, you know, geodesic desic Jones in the middle of a forest. <laughs> And, you know, Manjivadra had this vision, you know, that here was a place where, well, maybe trying to start a centre in, in the city. I mean, what we did in England usually was find somewhere to rent and you'd be in a city and you'd know what you were doing. And you'd know the kind of people you were talking to and, you know, you'd get a few friends and a few more. And then in time, some of them might live together and then there'd be some fundraising. And, and, and so it goes. But it, it clearly wasn't working that way here. Um, but instead, maybe, you know, if they got this place, this place, you know, they'd be able to create a kind of showcase, a total situation where they could live and demonstrate community life, where they could teach the Dharma, run some classes, where they could run retreats. There was a wood shop. Which direction is, should I be pointing in? Thank you. Um, <laughs> shows how much I know. Um, you know, where they could maybe start a business to, to earn a living and demonstrate you know, team ba- a, a Buddhist approach to, to economics, team-based right livelihood. They could sort of show the, the whole thing, show off the whole thing. It would be a showcase for what we'd learned so far in, 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 in our movement. Um, and people would come, they'd appreciate it, they'd realise that we were the answer, and they would join in. <laughs> Well, one of the first people to join in, he even came over to England and, and visited us and stayed in the, London, in the community above the London Buddhist Centre for a little while. You know, a young man who was very taken by it all came to England, met Sangrach, and met us, 
came back, got involved, I think he moved into the community, started working in the woodshop, and as Manjavadra tells the story, one day something happened to him, and it wasn't the same thing as what happened to Siddhartha or the Buddha-to-be, in the shower. He obviously had some realisation that this isn't what he wanted to do with his life, and apparently he walked out of the shower pausing only to put his clothes on before leaving, and never being seen again. Um, so another reality check. Uh, you know, it wasn't going to happen that quickly. It wasn't going to be that easy. I came on the scene not long after that. I had my first visit in 1987. So I think, uh, well, you know, They'd been in this place, you know, Manjivadra Punya, by then Ratnapani, Daya Ratna, various English people, English Scottish people, um, you know, were the, were the community making, you know, doing what they could with the place. And I came over because uh, at that time I was strongly involved in a, a fundraising organisation in the UK that raised money to help with social projects in India. One, one branch of, 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 our, of our work is a total movement. And there was a conference in Ann Arbor called World Buddhism in North America, which uh, Manjivadra and I were going to go to, and I was going to promote this, a fundraising tour for two of our workers in the United States for the following year. So I was there to schmooze Buddhists um, <laughs> you know, and, and get a, a fundraising tour set up. And Manjivadra was there representing, well, we were both there representing our movement and Manjivadra in particular, the FWBO. And I think it's fair to say that, um, you know, unless Saramati and uh, Dayamati aren't here, you know, I can make up any story. Um, but no, I, in some ways, in a small way, we were the stars of that conference. It was a really good conference organized by a Korean teacher, Samu Sunim, who's, who's still, um, you know, he still has his place in Ann Arbor, though I think he's now in Chicago. It was a really well-conceived conference with representatives from the whole Buddhist world who are now working in America, talking about what they did, but talking about their problems and the issues that they, that, that they were working with in trying to teach the Dharma in this new Western environment. And as Manjivadra and I contributed to the discussions and the question and answer sessions and gave our own talks, you know, it was really... You know, it was great you know, how many people came up to us and said, God, you guys really seem to have, you know, you're light years ahead of us, you know, these things you're doing, what Sangharachita has worked out. And it was great, it was incredibly flattering, you know, these ten days of uh, being terribly stimulated by everything we were hearing, but also, you know, feeling ourselves to be, in a little way, the darlings of this conference. Um, and I remember driving back from Ann Arbor with Manju Vajra, and he was feeling really frustrated because you know, it was such a contrast between being there representing Sangharachita and our vision and our approach to, to the Dharma you know, and getting such positive feedback and going back to the day-to-day -day grind of trying to make this place work, trying to get it to survive. And you know, as we, talk, as we sort of talked it through, we, we said, yeah, but what makes, you know, it, it's only because we're doing it that we've got something to report. You know, it is the day-to-day -day grind that's kind of going to make this thing real, that's going to make it happen. And, uh, well, it was a day-to-day -day grind. I mean, whether it was Manjivadra or 
as, as chairman, or Vijavati as chair, or as Dailochina knows, as, as chair, and as many people in this room know, and as many people who aren't in this room know, it's been an extraordinary journey. You know, since 1987 to to the present, well, since 1985 to the present. You know, the amount of work that's gone into this, the amount of uh, you know, struggles sometimes and difficulties and, and, and worries. I mean, my, it's a terrible thing to say, but my favourite story from the very earliest days involves Ratnapani, a member of the, you know, an Englishman, one of the one one of the people who, you know, sort of helped things along before it became an American-run centre. He had certain building skills and had quite a lot to do with the maintenance of the place. And as I'm sure most of you know, this place calls for huge amounts of, uh, of maintenance and work. Now, I don't know if it's still there. Arjava will, uh, will let me know. But um, there used to be a, a basement underneath yeah. the entrance foyer yeah. with a huge trap door. Yeah. Ratnapani, I don't know what he was doing, but it involved a ladder that stood next to that trap door, which, for reasons of whatever it was he was doing, was open. <laughs> and something happened, and he went tumbling headfirst down through the trap door, the open trap door, towards the ground, and he said, as he fell, he had time to think not how much this is going to hurt, how much, he had time to think, how much will this cost? <laughs> And it cost quite a lot, I believe. You know, these guys didn't have insurance. Um, you know, it was a real hand-to-mouth existence. When the day I arrived, um, Nino, as he was, Vicaccia now, yeah, was uh, visitor, 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 who was you know, a, a youngish man from Cleveland who, who, who was living here. He was very proudly showing off the, his finger off which he'd locked the top on one of the... Uh, <laughs> you know, right from the outset, you know, it, it was hard, it was a struggle, it was people just trying to make do. I mean, I hope you know, at some point, in, if not in during this week, but you know, in the future, the, 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 the people you know, who have given so fully, so heroically, often with such difficulty... Um, to make this place work, to, to, to keep it here, to make it survive. You know, it, it's been you know, a hard slog, but what I've noticed is just how willingly people have given. You know, I've been amazed to see you know, how tired people have been, and yet they've been happy to be organising another retreat or you know, to, 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 to be making things happen. I know it's not always like that, but my overriding impression has just been such devotion, such loyalty... You know, to each other, to the project, to the vision. You know, for, for these 25 years, you simply wouldn't be here. It wasn't just that one incident where I was able to help out by talking to some people who you know, felt able and willing to help out with some money. I mean, there are so many times where, you know, whether it was Dialogue you know, or Arjava or Amala or you know, any number of people, you know, I'd be here all night if I named them all, you know, who have given and given again you know, to make this place hum and to, to work and, and to survive and more than survive, to, to flourish. What we have, you know, as that work's been done and as the centre 
has, has, as I say, not only survived but flourished is something I think a bit different to what Manjuvadra had in mind, you know, the, the original founder. I mean, it's not the showcase in the way that he expected. I mean, the, the, the woodshop is silent. You know, there are some people from, from the Arya Loka Sangha who found ways of working together in the centre itself, obviously, but also, you know, with, with, with our Javari in teams. And there have been various attempts to create teams. Um, and no doubt there'll be, there'll, there'll be more in the future. There isn't a community anymore in that building over there, which is great because it means I get to choose which room I stay in when I come. But, you know, you know, so in, in that sort of way, you know, Arya Loka isn't quite what Manjuvadra thought it was going to be. I don't know, you know whether he would be happy or disappointed, but what I want to say is that I think what you've got... If what at the moment you, you, you've got, and as it were, not ended up with, but arrived at at this moment in time, is something absolutely groundbreaking. You've got a successful, lively um, Sangha and Buddhist centre, which runs a full programme of activities and retreats in Newmarket, New Hampshire. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, some, you know, some of you are kind of young people with an alternative you know, take on life, a lot of you aren't. You know, you're people who, you know, you're worrying about how you're going to put your kids through college or, you know, that your health, whether your health benefits are going to survive or whether your retirement age is going to recede forever or, you know, and yet here you are. You know, it's, this is a real American centre run by Americans. It, it's a fantastic achievement and it proves that it can be done anywhere. <laughs> I mean, Frank Sinatra says, you know, if I can make it here in New York, I can make it anywhere. I'd say, no, if you can make it happen here in Newmarket, New Hampshire, you can make it happen anywhere. I was once having a joke with, um, we talked about mission statements one day you know, over dinner downstairs and I can remember thinking of you know, a mission statement for Aria Loka which I just thought had a nice sort of timbre to it which is bringing little miracles to the granite state <laughs> so, I like <laughs> but you know it, it's really something to reflect on you know that you have managed to do that, that you know, and that you, know, you have got access to that that here in this unlikeliest of places, if I may say so. You know, shoot me down if I'm wrong. You know, you have access to the Buddha Dharma, to this, to this extraordinary phenomenon that, that, that the Buddha set in motion two and a half thousand years ago. And you've got it in a, an accessible, coherent form, you know, through a body of teachings that hang together and make sense, you know, where there is good, competent, instruction in a variety of meditation practices that, that offer a, you know, a, a comprehensive path of meditation practice. You know, we have a circle of friendship with like-minded people who can support, inspire, encourage and challenge. And all this in a beautiful, peaceful, uh, natural environment. It's fantastic. Yeah, and it's what the Buddhist scriptures could refer to, and it's, it's a term you sometimes hear somebody say, this is a fine place for striving. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a story of a young monk who was one of the Buddha's companions who on his way back from an arms round sees a mango grove 
you know, and it's a place, it's just dreamy and it's shady and it's beautiful and, you know, he looks at it and he thinks to himself, oh, that would be a fine place for striving. Because <laughs> it is about striving, it's not just about enjoyment, it's not just about kind of woozing along, you know, in the pleasure of the company and in the pleasure of the meditations, it's about there is... You know, there is striving. You know, remember Siddhartha, this young man, striving for enlightenment. You know, he'd given up his family, he'd given up his life, he was begging his food. And yet, according to at least one story from the tradition, even then, even before he found the truth, as he wandered from place to place, you know, working, practicing, meditating, looking perhaps for teachers who might help him, a king saw him from the battlements of his castle, saw this young man, he was so impressed by his nobility, um, by his um, uh, stature, I suppose, that he sent out his uh, retainers to, to stop this man and bring him to him, whereupon he offered him half his kingdom. You know, that was, you know, that's what Siddhartha looked like when he was out there striving. So a fine place for striving. And there's something, you know, in that, in this name of yours, Arya Sometimes I think it's translated as, or I hear it translated as the noble realm, Arya Loka, the, the noble realm. But the word Arya, you know, has, has quite a specific meaning within the Buddhist tradition. You know, I was telling Sangharakchita once about a meeting I'd been to where... You know, some people were very, very angry with the, with, with the speaker, somebody who'd just given a talk, because he talked about the importance of developing positive emotion, uh, you know, happiness and, and, and friendship and human warmth. And, uh, you know, these people were very, very angry. They said, well, you're, but, but Buddhists, you know, we're meant to keep aware of suffering. You know, we shouldn't be trying to be happy and friendly. You know, we should keep our minds locked on suffering. <laughs> This is true. This is true. This can happen. And Sangharakta laughed and said, but, you know, this is the problem. They forget that the, you know, the, the fourth, you know, that the first noble truth of these, the four noble truths, which I imagine you've all heard of, um, you know, this, the noble truth of suffering is the Aryan truth of suffering. It's the transcendental truth of suffering. It's a truth when seen from the point of view of a transcendent state of mind in relation to that, you know, in, in relation to a transcendent state, of, a transcendental state of mind, you know, the ordinary human state you know, is, is one of suffering. So Arya, you know, the Arya in Arya Loka implies something transcendental, something beyond, something other. You know, it's back to what it was that Siddhartha stumbled upon or, or discovered or broke through to. You know, Arya Loka is a fine place for striving after transcendental experience, experience that transcends the norm, transcends our conditioning, transcends our preferences, transcends our biases. So Arya Loka is an extraordinary achievement, and from all accounts that I that I constantly bump into, it's a a wonderful, welcoming, warm place. I don't think I've ever known a centre, and I've been to a lot of them, and I still go to a lot of them, I don't think I've been to any Buddhist centre where people so love the place, so love 
their circle of friends. There is such loyalty, such devotion to the place and to the circle of friends. So it's a welcoming place, a, a place of support, peace, inspiration and friendship. But I hope it will always be also a place of challenge, a place where you know, we, and I include myself because I'm a visitor too, you know, are challenged in some way or another to, to keep breaking through, to keep waking up out of the sort of bad dream of a narrow, self-centered life bounded by the sort of murky wants, fears and views that come with a narrow, distorted view of one's relationship with the universe. Buddhist practices, as I imagine most of you know, can have immediate benefits. Yeah, Buddhist practices can, you know, very quickly, you know, if we do the mindfulness of breathing, the metabhavana, or you know, any number of the, the things that are done here, make us just feel better, happier, calmer, and so on. The discovery through one of these practices that our experience of life, our experience of reality, is constantly being mediated by our mind and by our state of minds, and that we can do something about our minds and our states of mind, is an extraordinary discovery. The discovery that we can and must take responsibility for our moods, for our states of mind, and therefore for our experiences and actions, it represents an extraordinary breakthrough. But it's not the end. You know, to to realise that, to see that, to grasp that, marks the beginning of the path, the beginning of a journey, a journey in which, well, we might be called upon to transform all our habits, our hobbies, our priorities, our activities, even our relationships, our entire life perhaps, and move towards a greater and deeper and fuller awakening. That's not for everyone. Not everyone wants that. Not everyone is going to feel up to that challenge. And Arya as I know it, is also here for people like that. If you do just want some help to sleep better or to deal with life a bit more calmly and clearly, this place is there for you as well. But if you do choose to make that journey, or if you're already on it, you know, my hope is that Arya this realm of transcendence will always be there for you, will always be a truly radical Buddhist centre. Its success, even its survival, is a tribute to its past, a tribute to the, the heroism, the dedication, the practice of the people who've come before. I hope its future is going to be one of increasing security. One day it might even meet code. Um, <laughs> do you know? Do you know? I'm just going to digress. Somebody told me yesterday that to meet code, it would probably take two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Now, isn't that interesting? Shush! Don't spoil. <laughs> Don't spoil this. Just because you know more than me. <laughs> two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Twenty-five years. The Buddha lived two and a half thousand years ago. <laughs> Isn't this interesting? This strange, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
alignment of the planets, <laughs> alignment of the figures. Maybe this is the year when the miracle will happen. <laughs> I'm sure someone, I think Tom, is going to be having a word with some of you about this quite soon. And I wish him great luck, good fortune and strength as he goes about his business. So yes, I hope to see, I hope the future will bring a, a, a more secure, a more stable working environment for you all. I hope it's going to become a more vital and harmonious Sangha network, of course, more and more securely in with the kind of global community that is our Tri Ratna Buddhist community. I hope that it's going to meet all your needs, whether for support or inspiration or simple guidance or challenge again and again and again. And I hope in time it will provide some of you, maybe all of you, with a platform when you are ready to start teaching and sharing this extraordinary, precious gift of the Dharma yourselves. It's a time to think about the past, but I think, you know, and I feel more motivated in a way to think about the future. You know, when, when I visit a Buddhist center or when I contemplate the possibility of somebody starting a Buddhist center or if I visit you at this moment in your history, yes, I think about the, the, the heroism and the practice and the work you know, and the people who pass through this place. But I also like to think of those people who have no idea yet that this place even exists and yet whose lives are going to be radically transformed by their encounters with you and with whoever follows you in this place. And who knows what effect they will have on their friends and the world that they live in. There's a, an important Chinese text, and sometimes translated as the Hui Neng Sutra. It's a, it's, it's a series of recorded or transcribed talks by an important patriarch in the Chinese Chan Zen tradition. Now, he talks a lot about philosophy and metaphysics and the nature of, of reality and truth and so on. But what I find really lovely is the way he begins his talk. He says, you know, we've obviously acquired great merit to be here today. Just the simple fact of being present to hear a Dharma talk, sitting in a, a Dharma center, suggests that somewhere along the line, in who knows which previous lives, we've acquired great merit simply to be here today. And I rejoice in the merits of all of you in whatever it is that's brought you here tonight. I rejoice in the extraordinary merits of the people who've made this place possible and who've brought it to life. But I also rejoice in the merits of all those who will come and whether here at Arialoka or someplace that perhaps succeeds Arialoka, who knows what the future holds, you know, who will come and who will continue this tradition of ours long after we've played our part and left the stage and handed over Arialoka and our precious Tree Ratna community to coming generations, not just for the next 25 years, but for the next 2,500 Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 